Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a former Google employee who turned to philosophy to try to understand how the tech industry is undermining human autonomy. The goals of these systems are just so completely misaligned with the goals that we have for ourselves. And these systems are being deployed on a wide scale with some of the smartest people in the world, the most sophisticated algorithms behind them. I mean, it's a bit too much, I think, to ask to say, well, we just need to wait you know, a while until we have evidence that they're doing what they say they're doing. By then, the technologies will have completely changed under our feet. That was James Williams, co-founder, along with Tristan Harris, of the non-profit organization Time Well Spent. He came into the FT to talk about his book, Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy. James, you are a technologist-turned-philosopher, which is an interesting career trajectory. Tell us about that. How did you switch from one career to another? Well, I went into philosophy mostly for the money. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I was working at Google and really enjoyed my time there. I was working mostly on the search advertising side of things. And, you know, my whole life I had had, had this sense that, you know, more technology is better, more information is better. My father worked for Texas Instruments when I was young, and I, you know, I was sitting in a high chair using the first 16-bit home computer. And, and I had this moment when I was working at Google, and I realized that on a personal level, it was harder to do things I wanted to do with myself. But then I looked around the industry, and I also kind of looked at these goals that we were designing people's essentially lives, their behavior toward. And there were these you know, very petty kind of goals, engagement metrics, they're often called things like getting people to click on more things, scroll view more pages or ads. And I think I just realized that, you know, no one has these goals for themselves. Our goals are things like spending more time with family or learning to play a musical instrument or things like this. You know, the stuff that, you know, when we're on our deathbeds, we'd regret not doing. So I felt like something had kind of gone amiss in just the direction that these digital platforms were going. And I think I really wanted to kind of just understand better, you know, the way in which if these systems were undermining the human will, or undermining our autonomy in some way. How were they doing that? And what was at stake? And so that's really what took me to Oxford to kind of look at the philosophy, the ethics of all of this. Was there a particular trigger or was it a gradual realization? Because I mean, a lot of the tech companies make the very persuasive statement that they are doing a lot of good for the world. But you're saying that you flipped and realized that actually what they're doing is quite bad. Was there a particular moment or was this just a gradual realization from your point of view? Well, I think they do do a lot of good for the world, but I think that there's a disconnect between the ultimate goals that they often have and the ultimate goals that we often have. So I think they could do better. There wasn't sort of one moment, but I think it was a gradual realization during a certain period of time when I was particularly inclined to think deeply about some of these issues. When you were at Oxford, you wrote this essay called Stand Out of My Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy, which won a lot of awards and praise from a lot of the philosophy professors and so on. Tell us about the title. Where did that come from, Stand Out of My Light? One of my favorite philosophers back in ancient Greece, his name was Diogenes of Sinope, and he was probably the closest thing philosophy has produced to a troll. He, uh, <laughs> he was a homeless guy who lived in the marketplace, lived in this big ceramic barrel, would routinely, you know, just sort of pleasure himself in front of the patrons of the marketplace. He would show up to Plato's lectures and, you know, eat loudly to interrupt them. And he was seen as this rude, brash guy. But he was really admired by Alexander the Great, who was probably the most famous 
most powerful person in the world. And so there was this one story that's told in a few different ancient sources where um, Diogenes was sunning in Corinth and Alexander finally visits him and with his whole army of bodyguards and servants. And Alexander is just fawning over him and says, Diogenes, I you know, admire you so much. Ask any one thing and I'll grant it. And Diogenes, you know, true to form, he says, you know, stand out of my light. The connection with the tech sector is not immediately obvious. Yeah, I mean, I think it embodies a certain kind of attitude that it's useful for us to have in the face of these great powers of our time, these kind of almost imperial forces, well-meaning imperial forces of our time. And so what I equate with the light here is our attention. And the business model of most of these companies is to capture and direct our attention in the ways that are useful for them. And I think so much of the conversation about the ethics of technology has been focused on the way they manage our information. But I think we're just starting to really think more deeply about the way in which they manage our attention, which in a broad view is not just my attention right now, what I'm looking at, what I'm listening to, but the way I navigate my life as a whole. In the William James sense, who said attention is the fundamental phenomenon of will. And so I think to me, this idea of asking tech companies or demanding that they stand out of our light is saying, take into account what counts as success for our lives and optimize for that. Make that your goals, not these more petty metrics like just getting us to look at a lot of things or click on a lot of things. Align your goals, your interests with ours, essentially. Now, people have been battling for our attention for centuries. I mean, the whole advertising industry has emerged as a battle for our attention. You know, people were worried that radio, then television, was going to do terrible things and rot our brains. What is it about modern technologies that you think that is different from that? Why should we be more worried about that? Mm. Well, I think in the past, our media were confined to certain physical contexts. You know, you sit down in your living room to watch TV, you listen to the radio in your home, in your car. But I think now, especially with the advent of smartphones, these devices have kind of enveloped our lives. They're sort of the default, the go-to thing we do in these moments when we have nothing else to do. And we might have previously just you know reflected or thought about something else. So I think that their ubiquity across our lives is one difference. I think another difference is the nature of the persuasive power they have. In the 20th century, the story of the advertising industry was the story of understanding ways in which people are persuaded are not merely informational, hence the rise of branding, of you know all these sort of things. And the traditional justification for advertising had been we give people information that helps them make a better purchasing decision. And in an information-scarce world, that was true. But now information is abundant. And advertising essentially doesn't have the character of giving us information. It's the character of shaping behavior and persuading us toward a certain behavior. So the persuasive power in terms of understanding human psychology, but then also the algorithmic sophistication that's at play here. Thirdly, I think a big difference is the centralization of power. Facebook has over 2 billion users. That's more than any religion or language. And the idea that one lever can be pulled that will shape the experiences, the thoughts, the habits of two billion people is a form of power that is fundamentally new in human history. We don't even have a word for it, I don't think. So I think that on these criteria and more, I think it's similar to the difference between you know a rainstorm and a hurricane. They're both of the same source of things, but a difference of degree at a certain point becomes a difference of kind. You were talking there about algorithmic sophistication. So mm. when you were at Google, what were you doing that was a kind of manifestation of that algorithmic sophistication? How were you mining people's attention in ways that is qualitatively different from what has gone before? Well, one recent example has come up since I've left Google. The DeepMind AlphaGo algorithm, which is the algorithm that beat the world 
champion at the game of Go, which was this long pursued feat of AI sophistication. After it did that, there were five projects it was put to work on, and one of them was the recommended video algorithm on YouTube. So you know, the same algorithm that beat the world champion at Go is showing me, showing you the videos that will keep you using YouTube longer. And I don't think we think about this kind of power imbalance when we open up these web pages, when we use these apps, we use these sites. But today, advertising is one of the major business incentives behind the development of some of the most sophisticated AIs, which is to say human persuasion is. And this isn't, I think, talked about widely enough. And there are a lot of great uses, of course, of these algorithms. It's not that the sophistication is itself bad. It's that the incentives that make it useful to use them for the large-scale management of people's lives in ways that may not accord with their own goals. To me, I think that's the fundamental problem. It's not just the technology here that I think is the issue. It's really the business models. It's what drives the technology. Right. You've said in your essay that the liberation of human attention may be the defining moral and political struggle of our time, Mm. which is one big claim. (laughs) So I'm going to challenge you. Defend that. Well, I think the main defense would be to say that, you know, in the same way that if you're driving a car and a bunch of mud gets thrown on your windshield, you can't see where you're going. You could say one problem is you might hit a tree, but the first order problem is you need to clean off your windshield so you can see where you're going so you don't hit the tree. And in the same way, we have so many problems to tackle in the world today, whether it's extremism, climate change, polarization, these kinds of things. But until we can really tackle problems that matter, we have to be able to give attention to the things that matter. And so I think it's the idea that the control over our attention is a first order problem. And without really fixing this problem of the manipulation of our attention, it's going to be really hard to fix any problems that we would use that to fix. Right. I find this a fascinating argument because one of the doubts I've always had about the ability of the tech companies to kind of modify behavior is what evidence is there that they are able to persuade you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. But your argument, as I understand it, is slightly different from that. You're saying that they are just stopping you doing things that you might otherwise do because they're distracting your attention. Is that right? I think there are ways in which technologies make it harder for us to do the things we want to do. I mean, we all have had these experiences where we stay up an hour or two later than we would like to. But it's also that it makes it harder, I think, over time for us to be the kind of people we want to be. Because repeated actions become habits, and then we start you know, implicitly living by certain values that aren't our own. But then I think at the end of the day, there's a deep level about the capacities that are necessary to live and navigate a human life, the ability to be reflective, to have imagination, to really think about what matters. I think there's a variety of ways. Some of them are intentional. Some of them are just a function of the nature of the medium, byproducts. But I think there are all these different ways in which the navigational capacities of our lives are being undermined by technologies. And so I think that it's extremely important that we look at these. But I don't think we have to have a full accounting of the harms of the negative effects in order to really make that point or to start a process of reform. For me, it's enough to say that the goals of these systems are just so completely misaligned with the goals that we have for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And these systems are being deployed on a wide scale with some of the smartest people in the world, the most sophisticated algorithms behind them. I mean, it's a bit too much, I think, to ask to say, well, we just need to wait, you know, a while until we have evidence that there are these effects, that they're doing what they say they're doing. 
But by then, the technologies will have completely changed under our feet. So in a way, we're living by a faulty GPS, I think, as you That's express That's the metaphor it. I use in the book, yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily a flaw with the technology itself, as you're saying. It's the uses to which it is put. And so is it not possible to reorient the uses of technology to actually pretty fabulous ends that it could enable us to absolutely focus on the things that are worthy of our attention and are enriching for our lives? I think so. I mean, I think to me, this is what technology is for. You know, if it's not for improving our lives, then I don't know why we would have it in the first place. And so I think what is needed is a process of recalibration of reform to ensure that the design of the technologies, the incentives that drive the design, even the ways that we think and talk about technology and how that contributes to their design, that this becomes aligned with our interests, our goals, that sense of what makes us authentically human, what makes our lives go well. And that's not to say that. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. It's purely one way because, you know, we always adapt and change in response to technologies. That's the story of human history. But it doesn't mean that we can't make technologies that advance our lives in the ways we want them to go. Now, one worked example, as it were, of your thesis is Donald Trump, that he's able to use technology in incredibly sophisticated ways. And you have this great line that the way that he uses technology is like a distributed denial of service attack against the human will. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that. How is Donald Trump using technology? Well, I mean, I think he understands in a way that very few people do the way the media works. I mean, he spent his entire life essentially marketing and selling himself as a brand. And he understands the dynamics of the attention economy and rode those dynamics to the nomination and election of the presidency of the United States without any qualifications you know, whatsoever. And in a way, there's something in a kind of operational sense kind of admirable about that. Just as an example, as we said a day or two ago, Donald Trump tweeted something about climate change, and it, there was a record cold spell in the Midwest of the U.S., and, you know, he says, record cold temperatures in the U.S., where's that global warming when we need it? You know, it's a point that, you know, you could Google in two seconds and know is false, and I think he knows it's false, but I think what he does with it is he's almost a Diogenes type of character. It's like he's learned how to harness trolling in a, almost an industrialized fashion. I mean, he's really a genius at it the more he can keep people talking about himself and these stupid things he says, the less they'll focus on these other more substantive things that matter. Part of it is the way in which Twitter has colonized the world of journalism and kind of our psychological landscape. And part of it is just the way we've habituated ourselves into loving being outraged about things and almost find it hard to find meaning when we're not being outraged about something. So, so I mean, we in the media are complicit in this in a way, aren't we? I mean, I was thinking just before the midterms, there was this whole row in America about the caravan that was supposedly coming up from Central America into invade America. And Trump, as you're saying, used that as strategic distraction from a lot of the other issues. But it wouldn't have had as much resonance as it did unless the media played along with it, would it? 
Right. And I mean, I think there's specifically an issue with the role of advertising here. I mean, the reason that people run stories about Trump or whoever is the popular subject of the day is because it gets views and it's useful to get views because the more views you get, the more ads you sell. So I think that advertising is the formal cause of, I think, a lot of this in a lot of ways. Obviously, no journalist wants to you know, have the public focus on things that are unimportant. It's just that in the same way that no designer or engineer at a company wants to build a product that makes somebody's lives worse. It's just that we're stuck in these systems, these incentive structures that we haven't really forcefully and meaningfully questioned as a society. How can we change those incentive structures? Well, I think one is getting away from the type of advertising that just seeks to and makes it valuable to grab people's attention and hold people's attention. I think that there's a conversation about the nature of advertising that needs to happen. And I talk about this in my book some, but I think it's challenging actually to define what advertising is anymore. You know, in an information abundant world, I think the guys who make South Park, they're so on top of all of these trends a couple of seasons ago, there was a couple of episodes where it's like, is everything an ad now? And I think that I think it's right. I think everything is an ad. Our entire environment is persuasive. It's hard to say what's an ad and what's not. So I think that a kind of societal revisiting of the question of what kinds of psychological manipulation we should accept as business models, basically. But then in order to do that, I think we need to have a more robust way of talking about persuasion of influence. I think we lack a kind of grammar of influence. So we have a great way of talking about you know, the legality, the ethics of how technology manages our information, privacy, data protection, surveillance, these kinds of things. But I just don't think we have that language yet when it comes to attention, behavior, our moment-to-moment, day-to-day actions. I think we really, we really lack that language. And that's actually one of the things I've been focusing on lately as one of my main projects, because I feel like until we have a clear way of talking about all of this, we're just going to be going around in circles. So, I mean, the technology has thrown up new concepts and new linguistic ideas. FOMO, for example, mm. or humble brag. These are mm-hmm. kind of new created words to explain a technological phenomenon or a social phenomenon of technology. So you think we need to really invent a whole new language in order to explain what is happening to us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that we have these new words for describing new things on the internet. Like, I mean, I don't know what I called clickbait before. Clickbait. <laughs> but, you know, I think that because we don't have a language for talking about influence in a sort of robust way, we end up calling the undermining of political will meddling, right? Which seems to me a really impotent word for it. And so I think we need to have an understanding of what are those sort of ethically salient dimensions of influence and which of those types of influence, whether that's manipulation, deception, persuasion, et cetera, et cetera, which of these variants of influence are really problematic in the sense that they undermine our autonomy, they make it harder for us to live the lives we want to live. And so I think a lot of that then turns on the way in which we think about the ethics of non-rational persuasion, which I think is another major frontier for ethics to tackle. And I know people who are working on this at the moment. What are the most promising avenues in that? I mean, how do you think we can achieve salvation as it were to concentrate on what we really want to concentrate on, to want what we really Mm -hmm. should be wanting? I think in the near term, it will be about identifying what are those minimal necessary capacities for living an autonomous life, for participating as a citizen in society. You know, what kinds of decision-making capacities does democracy minimally assume? You know, in Roman law, there was a concept they call it the benefit of competence, which if you were in debt and you couldn't pay your debts, there was a certain set of your possessions that couldn't be taken from you, like the tools you needed to do your job and maybe bootstrap yourself back up to sufficiency. Basically, it was like kind of the minimum viable set of things you needed to run your life. And I think if we can kind of identify what that is at a capacitive level, 
when it comes to resistance to this persuasive environment, to non-rational influence, then I think that would be a start. I don't think it's the end game for it, but I think that would at least be a kind of foot in the door that helps us start to have a conversation about in what ways these technologies should be shaping our lives and in which ways they shouldn't. Okay. I'd like to ask you a bit about China, which you also discuss. And you have this concept of reverse censorship that the Chinese authorities, I think a couple of years ago, were putting out about 450 million posts on social media to distract people from what they otherwise would have been focused on. Can you tell us a bit about how does that work in practice? And is that the future, do you think, for all societies that we are going to have interventionist governments that are just going to shape what we focus on? Yeah, so that research and the term reverse censorship, that comes from the research of some folks at Harvard. But yeah, so I mean, I think the idea is that in an information scarce world, the way that you keep people from giving attention to something is by suppressing that information. But in an information abundant world, like just the storm of information that comes at us day to day on the internet, on social media, of which we can only really give attention to a small fraction, it's actually easier and more politically palatable not to suppress or take down or censor certain information, but just to redirect people's attention towards something else. And so I think the example there was the Chinese government. They have this whole army of people that are engaged in information operations. And instead of censoring the information that was deemed unacceptable, they, I think, flooded social media networks there with 300-something million posts about various things. So basically, it's like what magicians do, right? So it's like, you know, you distract somebody's attention with your right hand so that you don't see what their left hand is doing. I think it's a similar thing. And I mean, I think it relates to what we were talking about with Trump. I mean, I think there's strategic distraction all over the place. You know, it's why PR companies will release press releases on Friday evening or New Year's Eve. Um, it's a kind of strategic distraction as well. So then you can say, well, the information is out there. It's available. But I think there's an interesting distinction in between availability and accessibility. So you can say the information is available, but at the same time, make it more inaccessible to people and then pretend like you're on the side of sort of openness of information while not really being on that side. To what extent do you think your former colleagues at Google and Silicon Valley in general understand this as a problem and are determined to do anything about it? I was struck last year when I was there and already we'd seen the beginning of the tech clash against some of the tech companies that one entrepreneur I spoke to said that free will is up for sale. That's what he had realized. He must have read your book, I suspect. Is that the case? Do you think that there is a growing consciousness in Silicon Valley of some of the harms that they're doing in the ways that you describe and people are now trying to do something about that? I think there is a consciousness among people who work at these tech companies that what they're doing should serve some higher purpose than just making money. I've seen that sentiment growing in people that I know who work at these companies. But I've also seen it in the younger generation of designers, engineers, some of whom I've helped teach at Oxford, who really don't just want to know the how behind how do you create something, but why? Why are we doing this in the first place? What are the goals? What are the values that the technologies I'm making are advancing in the world? And you know, I think since the beginning of, I guess, the sort of monetization, large-scale monetization of the internet, we've really kind of just been binging on putting the pedal to the metal with advertising. And I think now we're starting to hit the brake pedal a little bit, turn the steering wheel a little bit. But I'm optimistic when I talk to younger entrepreneurs. Of course, there will be people who their only interest is making money at whatever cost. And I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, society as a society, we have a responsibility to mitigate. Then I think at the end of the day, the real, you know, because like W. Edwards Deming said, you know, a bad system will beat a good person every time. At the end of the day, I think if we don't change those business models and maybe even corporate structures, if we don't have some kind of systemic change, 
that makes it valuable for people, not just ethical, but valuable for them to you know, align what they're doing with enhancing people's autonomy, not undermining it, aligning what they're doing with human interests. I think if we don't have those systemic changes in place, I think it's going to be hard to undertake a persuasive effort, if you will, to try to get people to work against the quarterly or yearly goals their companies are giving them. Do you think tech designers ought to have a Hippocratic oath? So I talk about this in my book a bit. I think there have been other people who proposed oaths for engineers, scientists, designers. I have a kind of alpha version in my book of what it could look like for tech designers. I think it wouldn't be a bad thing. I don't think it's a panacea or anything. I think that for a variety of reasons, you know, with doctors, there's a clear moment at which to take that oath, you know, medical school graduations. But I think that, you know, if there were an oath of some sort or some kind of articulation of the values of what we expect of you know, people who are designing these products that we spend so much of our days with, designing our lives in a way, I think really the big effect would be to show that this discipline, that this type of job is oath-worthy, that it influences people's lives in such an important way, such a deep way, that you ought to keep your awareness of that front and center. And so whether that's an oath, whether it's some other kind of device, I think is less important than the effect that it would have on those people of making them realize that every day that I'm not designing technologies, I'm designing users, I'm designing society. So I guess the bottom line of all this is a scary phrase that I can still remember my primary school teacher screaming at us, pay attention. Is that what we've got to do? We've got to pay attention to how our own attention is being distracted and pay attention to what is important in our lives. I think, yeah, I think that's the constant struggle. I mean, I think that's the struggle that education, I think, ideally is there to help us manage that in an ideal world, technology would help us manage. It's kind of inspiring to try to imagine a world in which all these technologies we use did help us pay attention to what matters, you know, the family members that we want to talk to today, but didn't, or those things that we'll regret. I just think that's the perspective that our technologies ought to take as a first principle in the design. And, and hopefully we can get to that point. All right. Well, we've gone all the way from Diogenes to South Park. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of our show. You can email us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. <laughs>